Hi, I'm Diane Gregg, and welcome to Invisible Women, a podcast about eight women who worked in espionage during World War II. They were from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds. What they had in common was the opportunity to step outside of societal norms, while at the same time working in the shadows. And while their contributions were incredibly important, they've been hidden. Invisible Women is an opportunity to hear their stories, to explore their roles in society, and to discover what we can learn from their stories that's relevant today. I was 12 when my career training began with the Girl Guides. We were told to sew a pocket into our underwear to carry messages and given instruction in signaling and air raid drills. We were to be prepared for any emergency and to think for ourselves. I had an interview with the fellow from intelligence who said, I see by your school certificate that you were good at maths. Well, we're looking for people for special duties X. You'll have four days off every work period. I'm afraid I cannot tell you what it is. However, you'll be living in the country. Well, I was a country girl, so I said yes. Soon after our arrival, our resistance contacts in Lyon an emissary, uh, Mr. Bittner, who was a Polish engineer, came to see us, bringing the wireless machine and code manual. We were taught how to encode, encrypt messages, and decode. I applied for military service and was offered clerical or nursing jobs. My male friends were drafted or volunteered for the war. Nobody wanted me unless I was a nurse. <laughs> they wanted a number of women for clerical work, not my interest. I was a woman. Not easy in those days to be wanted. I asked a lieutenant I knew in the French army if I could help, and he laughed at me, patted me on the head and said, we don't ask little girls to risk their lives. What you need to do, you don't talk about it my mother used to say. During the war, I never talked about it either, to anyone except my mother. It was not done. I have no idea how many other women were involved with the resistance, but there were many, many women involved, and for us, a few family members too. Those are some of the stories you'll hear from the upcoming episodes. In all, eight women who told me their stories of working behind enemy lines as part of my PhD research in 2005. This podcast is about cultural shadow. What is darkened in our culture and therefore unavailable to us? It's also about projection, what we project onto others because of societal expectations. And it's about the unperceived lenses that we grow up with, invisible lenses, and how they thwart our lives, our potential, our creativity and empowerment and how these invisible lenses bind us in relationships, work, and life. I'm a psychotherapist, and my current practice involves focusing on women's issues in contemporary society, helping women reimagine their lives as we uncover the invisible threads of cultural shadow and the unperceived lenses in their lives that thwart their potential and bind them in their relationships, work, and life generally. I didn't plan to search out women who worked in espionage during the Second World War. In fact, I was working on completely different research. I was studying labyrinth meditation and dream work. 
And one evening, a friend called. He'd been interviewing World War II fighter pilots, and he said he'd come across a woman who'd been in espionage in World War II. She was 80 and visiting from out of town, and could I, would I, capture her story? I didn't want to say no at the time, but I was juggling family responsibilities and completing a PhD. He said he'd drop off some materials, and the envelope sat around on my night table for a couple of weeks until I had the time to take a look. I opened it randomly and landed on a page, and it said something like, Agents were flown in behind enemy lines by the light of the full moon, when there was sufficient light for the pilot to turn off the running lights. So by the silver-reflected light of the moon, life was dropped into the darkness, women into enemy territory. I was immediately hooked by this image of an endarkened plain sweeping over a farmer's field. And for over 60 years, women's acts of bravery and stories were still there, it seemed, in the darkness, rarely having been told. The image crystallized in my mind, calling to me, why was it that the only story I knew about women spies were the exploits of Mata Hari, who apparently sold sex for secrets in World War I? I had to know more. I read the rest of the materials in the package and began searching the internet. I discovered that in 2002, the UK, Canada, and the US had opened World War II espionage files, releasing names of agents who'd been flown in behind enemy lines to sabotage the Nazis. I also learned that no formal research had been completed on women spies with authentic narratives. So I wondered, would I be able to find enough of them for a dissertation study? I went to see the research director to see if I could switch research topics. He didn't want to continue to be my committee chair if I was going to pursue this topic about war and women, he said, who carry a double identity. Uh, So I asked another professor, a woman, who was head of the ethics committee at the time, and she tentatively gave me a yes if I could locate enough of them. She said, write up a pilot proposal, and she knew that 12 would work. If I could find 12, maybe less. Wow, (laughs) 12, I thought, how do I find them? I began searching for the women in the spring of 2004, but I didn't know for a year later if I had enough women to interview who would meet the criteria of at least eight narratives. That's what we got down to by then. The process was somewhat harrowing as these women were not easy to find due to the secrecy of their work, the official secrets act that they had signed, and because of the lack of historical acknowledgement. None of these women wrote fictionalized books about what they did during the war. They had remained silent. In fact, six women reported that they had never told their full undercover story to anyone. And all had only, in the last five years, revealed their spy activities to family or someone else. One told me that her immediate family did not become aware of her undercover involvement until a public statement was made by her government. And another one said that I was the first to obtain any of her World War II life story. And remember, these women were in their 80s and early 90s. An example of how difficult it was to interview some women While following the leads for a woman, I discovered a potential candidate's last name on a UK spy-related internet site. Archival information from the World War II British intelligence had been released and partly posted on this website. Oddly enough, I recognized her unusual last name because 10 years earlier, I had met a fellow on a ski holiday 
with the same name, and being from Eastern Canada myself, I easily remembered the town he'd grown up in. But I didn't know if this woman was related to him or still alive. But while in Eastern Canada that summer, I visited this town, and I asked about at local shops after the family. One store I went into, the owner mentioned that the mother was still alive and had relocated to a nearby town, and she volunteered this woman's cell number. I didn't feel comfortable cold calling her on a private cell phone number, but I was now able to look up her listed landline because I knew the town she lived in. Remember, this was 15 years ago. Not everything was on the internet. I called her home several times, and none of my calls were returned. So I waited, and about six months went by. It was January 2005, and I left another message, just in case, hoping she'd return my call. And within a month, and almost a year after I'd begun my investigation, she did return my call, stating that she'd had surgery, but that she did not give interviews. We chatted for several minutes about the possibility of me capturing her story and why I was investigating World War II women spies. And, but I, I stated, you know, I understand your position. She said she would think about it some more. And maybe I could call her again in two or three months. And after I got permission from the Special Forces Club in the United Kingdom. Well, I thought the Special Forces Club would be easy to locate, but it wasn't. I had to email another London-based archivist, asking him for information about the Special Forces Club. I waited two months and no emails had been returned. But about that time, I received a letter from the Special Forces Club, which she had belonged, of course, because she was a former British agent. It was a handwritten letter. It was, it was done with black ink and on, you know, the old blue airline paper. And it was from the archivist at the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. And he was willing to help me in any way in my endeavor. Well, I called this woman back immediately to see if she would then allow the interview. And I, I had some hope, although this woman had never told her story fully to anyone. But with the permission from the SOE, she just seemed to relax. And we soon arranged times to speak by phone. And within a couple of months, I had the opportunity to interview her in person. Another aspect of the difficulty in locating the women participants was, interestingly, uh, related to men. For all the women, men were the gatekeepers to obtaining information about the women I sought. For instance, a historian at the Smithsonian, the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., gave me the names of two men to contact who would in turn ask the potential women participants if they would consent to being interviewed. Then, I was vetted by the men, not unlike needing the permission of the SOE archivist in the previous example. On yet another occasion, it was an older fellow I met accidentally at a book sale who queried me at length as to why I was interested in World War II women spies, and then volunteered his male friend's name and number, who was the husband of the women I might interview. I had to be vetted by her husband first. And in another situation, it was the son of a woman who interviewed me prior to presenting me with his mother's telephone number. So all the women were protected by these layers. And when I asked this of a man who had worked in espionage himself 
and had known women spies from the Cold War, he stated, women could go to the grave without talking. It seemed to him that their ego, unlike the men, was not involved. But overall, it did become a little easier to locate the women because of the public focus on women in espionage for the 60th anniversary of D-Day in 2005. One of the women told me that that was because all the men had died and they were scraping the bottom of the barrel asking the women because she had never been asked to attend before. I heard common threads in their stories almost immediately. They were all living ordinary lives until war struck and then they were thrust into this unusual work. They all used societal expectations of women at the time to thwart the enemy, to fool the enemy, as you'll hear later in this episode. As Edie says, I just blended in. Being a woman, it was not expected that she'd be involved in anything serious that would undermine the Nazis. This is a fascinating fact that I'll come back to, that women's spies best cover is a projection by the enemy, that they are benign. Another common thread is that they all said that war is terrible, and yet they found the spy work thrilling. Ayla said, no one gave her any direction behind the lines. She was alone and had to make decisions herself in the moment, and this was thrilling. They all felt that what they had done mattered in some small way, yet they didn't boast or brag. Edie stated that it was just another thing to do, and Celine said, I was part of a team. Others did far more than me. Celine mentioned that when she met up with other agents at the 60th anniversary of D-Day, the men were all talking about their war exploits, while the women sat in a circle together discussing their lives and their families and current events. And all the women wanted to tell me their stories once I was vetted by their husband's son or male colleague, and then by them, of course. In fact, Pet told me that although she had to take Adivan to relax every time before we talked, she thought that it was really important to share her reflections in order to balance out the historical record, as many, many women had contributed to the resistance. The women included four military women and four resistance cell women who worked undercover in dangerous territory in the World War II era. Of these women, Two were French-born, and the six others were Russian, Irish, Dutch, Polish, Belgian, and American-born. They worked undercover between 1939 and 1946 in such countries as France, Poland, India, Holland, Belgium, and Czechoslovakia, and all were attached to an interconnecting web, a resistance cell, and or a military unit, and working for the most part only with men. Although this group of women is relatively small, this is compensated for by the variety in this group of women. They were born in seven different countries, worked for either the military or non-military cell. They completed a variety of undercover duties and came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. The fact that they all did this type of work during this particular era does bind them together in curious and thought-provoking ways. I thought there would be people who would know about it here, but they had no idea. 
The first story I'd like to share with you is Edie's story. People in Canada really were not interested a bit. Edie was a young woman who worked for two years in a large resistance cell in Belgium. She couriered documents which identified Nazi freight trains and their cargo. Her bravery resulted in numerous Allied raids seriously hampering the German advancement. Her whole family was involved in the resistance work. It was a family affair. I was listening to a radio show, and they made so much of the 50th anniversary of D-Day and all that. They had people on the TV telling their little stories, how they served coffee, the Salvation Army on the docks in Halifax, and I thought, oh, I've got a better story than that. When I interviewed Edie in her 80s, she was living alone, and although not exceptionally well, her mind and speech were sound. She'd been living in Canada for 55 years. She didn't feel as though she had contributed much to the war effort, but she was proud that she had stepped up when asked. I was in Ghent living at home. I was 16 and preparing to return to boarding school in England. But now that England was at war, I didn't want to be cut off from my parents. I didn't return. For a while, I attended a school in my hometown in Ghent in French, and life continued on quite normally. Then, since all public schools were taken over by the Germans and the French ones were switched to Flemish, my friends and I organized for private and underground classes in French, in history, literature, music, art, typing, and bookbinding. Although my private school education in Wales had been in English, my early education in Belgium had been in French, so I was completely bilingual, and although not fluent in German, I understood it well. <laughs> my brother was in law studies in the University of Brussels, and this was interrupted by the call to compulsory military service in Namur in southern Belgium. At the time, Belgium was neutral, so life was calm. This was when the British army was in France with the French defending the Maginot Line. However, in May 1940, during the Whitsun holidays, and while my family and I were vacationing at a hotel in the beautiful southern forests of Ardennes, Belgium was invaded We'd been in the pub the night before to eat dinner, and it was crowded with soldiers drinking. The next morning, very early on, May 9th, we heard gunfire and waves of planes flying over and people yelling, C'est la guerre! War had moved right into the area, and we had to get back home to Ghent. We were only 30 kilometers from the German border, so we had to get out fast. We rushed to the village and caught the last tram to Namur. The Belgian soldiers were blowing up bridges behind us. We realized this was really it. From Namur, we took a train to Brussels, and by the time we arrived, the station had been bombed by the Germans. It was a shock. 
Although there was panic and confusion, we got on a crowded train to Ghent and arrived at our bombed city with fire engines and ambulances scrambling about. We found out later that the fifth column, in other words, traitors from within Belgium who supported the Germans, had infiltrated the army at Champlon and got the soldiers at the Belgian frontier drunk the night before, as we had seen in the pub. There wasn't much resistance when the Germans crossed the border. Our soldiers had been duped. Refugees were pouring into the city in front of the advancing army, and air raids were very frequent. My parents decided we should leave Ghent for our villa on the coast, hoping that the German advance would be stopped soon. We could not imagine the Nazis taking over. But when we arrived at our villa, the war was in front of us. Fishing boats were trying to escape to England, and they were being shot at by German planes, and at one point, a British destroyer shot down a plane right in front of us, and we all cheered. We had a front-row seat, but, as you can imagine, it was very frightening, and everyone else who had summer homes had had the same idea, so the village was full of people. We stayed a couple of nights, but food was running out, so we packed up valuables, food, and headed toward France along with friends until this blew over. We didn't get very far down the road, and there was a traffic jam. Everyone else was trying to leave. Traffic went on for kilometers. We had to shut off the engines and push the cars to save gas. It was very slow going. People were trying to escape all around us. Women pushing baby carriages, horse-drawn carts piled high. It was quite a sight. We drove past Dunkirk, heading to Bologna. Finally, we found a farm along the road as darkness set in and slept the night in the farmer's barn. We hit the road again early, but soon... There were Stuka dive bombers swooping down on us, and we all dove into the ditch. They machine gunned the whole refugee column. It was terrifying. Somehow, we continued on, but I'm not sure how we did it. And we were traveling with two other families with mattresses on the roof of the cars. About an hour and a half south of Dunkirk, we found another farmer who let us use his barn in the small village of Alette. We took the mattresses off the roofs of the cars as we decided we'd better stay for a couple of days. Food was scarce in the village and we had to wait in long lines. Luckily, the farmer was kind and gave us some food, although he had five children of his own to feed. Many people were good-hearted and generous. We were in Alette when the Germans took over the town. We heard that King Leopold had ordered the armed forces to cease fighting and that Belgium had capitulated. Oh, we were shocked and felt shattered. 
We had really thought if we could get to France, perhaps we could go on to England. But now, we had to return home to Ghent. We had to get permission to travel from the German commander in the village, and once we did, we had to find fuel for the cars. It ended up taking us two days to get back to Ghent through bombed villages. There were many fresh graves along the roadside. The stench of death was everywhere. But we were so glad to see our house was still standing. We found a note from my brother John saying that he was all right. He had returned to the house for two days before turning himself in as a prisoner of war. All Belgian soldiers had to. Other than that, life just seemed to carry on, except for the German soldiers walking the street and swastika flags everywhere. We were under military rule and the news was all German propaganda. France capitulated within weeks of Belgium, so that just left England alone to fight. The Luftwaffe continued its destruction of London. We knew German forces were gathering for an invasion of England. There was angst, anxiety, anger, and a feeling of helplessness among many people. So most laid low and were afraid, but we were angry. Within a few months, we found others who wanted to make a difference, do something, and we developed a real friendship with them. Not right away. People were organizing to help, and we knew there was an underground movement. I got into it just after my brother John did. He had been sent to a prisoner of war camp, a stalag near Nuremberg, but within three months he was released, as were all prisoners who were born in Flanders, as the Germans favored the Flemish over the Belgian French. He was able to continue his law degree at the University of Brussels. It was there that he was recruited by the resistance cell called Service Zero. The first time I discovered he worked for the resistance was when he asked my mother if we could hide a downed Allied airman in our home. She said yes, and that day a friend of the family brought a Polish pilot who was flying for the RAF to the house. He had been hiding in the woods for two days. He was disoriented and hungry with an injured shoulder and had sat down beside this friend on a park bench. Since my parents had met and worked on the front lines in World War I as a doctor and nurse, they knew the danger this man presented for us, but we took him in anyways. We got him identification papers, and as soon as he was stabilized, the resistance organized a way for him to get back to England. One evening, John came to explain Service Zero to me. It was a network of agents which gathered information on troop movements, railways, 
airfields and any construction going on by the Germans. He was high up in it and in charge of collecting the railway intelligence and had several agents working with him. They obtained detailed data regarding movement of trains carrying troops, ammunition, guns and military equipment of all kinds. A summary needed to be completed and then couriered to Brussels to someone who would transmit the report to the UK. I didn't feel that writing up and transporting the files twice a month affected my life very much. I just saw it as another thing to do. I wanted to keep busy. That was it. I decided to do it. John received the information about the railway traffic in the northern part of Belgium, the train schedules and rail cargo. Then it needed to get to England so that they knew what ammunition was coming in and what was going out, what the Germans were stealing. Also from the data, the Allies knew which trains to bomb to disrupt the German flow of goods and ammunition. A very good friend of ours was in the railway, a man who had worked all his life there, who wanted to join the resistance. He was an honest chap, quiet, and what we wanted, what we needed. My brother recruited him and a few more good friends. I organized and typed all the reports from data brought to us and then couriered the summaries to Brussels. I delivered them to two different addresses and people each week, all women. This went on for more than two years. It was about an hour's train journey in those days to Brussels. Nobody had cars. The Germans had confiscated all the good ones. I'd have the report on my body. I'd put it in my blouse or else I'd carry it in my purse, but it was always a bit nerve-wracking. There were two trains in the morning and two in the afternoon, and I'd have to memorize the addresses, names and codes, and they wouldn't be given to me until the day of delivery. Often I'd be going to a perfume shop or a grocery store, but it changed each time, as did the people. The train was always packed, standing room only, and you'd be in there and hope for the best. And some days nothing happened, but there were always surprises. The stations had already been bombed, so we didn't expect that anymore. The freight stations were more likely to be targeted. It was the frisking and body searches that were worrisome. I remember one day... The train was late, and the Germans were coming through the car looking for anything. A couple of men were getting rid of whatever they had on their body, tearing it up and throwing it out the window. What I had was critically important, and I would not tear it up. I took my chances. The Nazis walked right by me. I somehow just blended in. Another time, I remember people in the train saying, There are Germans up front, taking people down and stripping them. 
I was able to avoid that one as well, but it became harder not to get caught as the Nazis became more determined and ruthless. For instance, in late 1942 at the Brussels station, there was a big commotion of Nazis searching people as they disembarked. They were randomly separating people out from others and then body searching them. They would do this just to terrorize us, and I was terrified, but somehow I was able to sneak around them and get away. I caught a tram outside as quickly as I could. They were arresting people right in front of me, and I slid by right between the soldiers as they were looking away. Blending in seemed to save me more than once. I seemed invisible to them. I was accosted on my bike several times, but never body-searched, as they did not suspect me of undercover work. They just wanted the food I was carrying, so I never carried any food when I was undercover. I was always worried about personal safety. You just tried to avoid them whenever you were out. You see, my father was a physician and had patients who were farmers. He would go out on the train to see them when necessary and then arrange a pound of butter, bottle of milk a week and more as trade for service. These were perfect luxuries and I'd go out to pick them up. I felt they were close calls in terms of my personal safety as more than a few times the Germans took everything I had, butter, eggs, bread potatoes. They would grab it all, put it in their car, and off they would go. But luckily, they never accosted me. In the middle of my couriering work, I was served papers by the Gestapo to appear at a certain time and date to enroll in the German workforce to go to a forced labor camp. Really, we didn't know how bad the camps were at that point. Early on, my father had decided that I should learn how to prepare slides in the pathology department of the university hospital where he taught. Since I wasn't going to school and had free time, it was a good learning experience as he wanted me to go into medicine. I had always hoped to be a nurse or doctor. Anyhow, my father was able to write to the Gestapo saying that I was needed, that I was usefully employed making slides of biopsies at the hospital. They accepted that only because they needed the hospital for their own soldiers, but I was always afraid they might change their minds and come pick me up. I just came and went as I pleased as long as the slides were completed. I did the work alone, so no one knew when I was there. It fit in very well with the couriering. The Germans began evacuating the non-Belgian citizens, and one day they came for my mother, who was British-born. She showed them her marriage papers to my father, a Belgian citizen, and they let her remain, but they confiscated her identification papers. Oh, my mother kept the house going. It was a big job in those days. Just having enough food for family and friends was a task, and we always had a house full of people as 
Many didn't have access to anything decent to eat. My mother was terribly good-hearted. She couldn't let anyone go away hungry or without a bed. She would take in anybody. She was never afraid of anything. She was a role model for me. She'd been through this kind of thing before. This was partly why I became a resistance member. Our family was always ready to help. And we talked about it. It was the natural thing to do. If it's not talked about, people don't know how to help. It is part of who I am. I enjoyed the espionage work. I was doing my part for the war effort and it was thrilling. I wasn't even 20. At 18, 19, you know, everything is stirring when you're at that age. So exciting. It was thrilling. I was always adventuresome, adaptable, and independent. I traveled to Wales by myself beginning at the age of 12 to private school. By the time I was 14, I was stopping in London on the way to visit relatives and friends. I believe my natural characteristics and family culture aided the couriering, and I instinctively somehow knew how to avoid getting caught. It was March 1943, and we were headed to the Palais of Justice for John's swearing-in ceremonies for his law degree. Afterwards, we all went out to have dinner in a little black market restaurant, and then my parents and I went home to Ghent on the train. John remained in Brussels with friends, and when he got back to his friend's house that evening, there were about five Gestapo waiting for him at the front door. They threw him in a car, and off they went, and we didn't know any more than that. Someone had turned him in. My resistance work stopped soon afterwards. All the Underground Service Zero members... Everyone we worked with were arrested and we didn't know who the culprit was. Someone in the group had told the Nazis. It was only because I was not on the Service Zero's member list I escaped arrest. They never suspected me for any reason. <laughs> that was lucky. That was lucky. After all the arrests, I had one last thing to do, and hence the reason I was not on the members' list, why John made sure I was not on it, and for my sake too, I guess, just in case such an event occurred. I was the one to report to the head of the cell. There was a plan in place. You know, it was all need to know, so only John, myself, and the doctor in Brussels knew the procedure. John had told me if he was ever arrested, 
I must immediately warn the head of the Service Zero organization, Comte Francois Dozel. John had given me an address in Brussels with a letter to deliver if ever there was an arrest. And the moment we heard, I got on the train to Brussels. I was not to give this address to anybody. There was a doctor downtown. I pretended to be a patient and wait in his waiting area to see him, which I did. When I was called in, I revealed who I was and gave him the letter. He immediately closed his practice and went to relay the information to the Comte. That was it. I got the message to him. Francois managed to escape and get away to the Belgian Congo. It was still free of Germans. The doctor, that was his only part, so that preserved him. But all the others were arrested, including the Comte's nephew and pregnant wife. While I was in Brussels delivering the letter, the Gestapo searched the house from top to bottom. They took away many papers, but the most potentially incriminating thing was the small, portable typewriter which I used to type the reports on, which they took. If they had found any of the reports on one of the resistance members, our contacts, or in their searches in Brussels, they could have immediately identified the typewriter and me. My parents and I thought that was it for us. They would be coming for me soon. Although they never arrived to take me away, that same year, after the arrests and interrogations, one morning, I answered the door and two Germans, holding pistols pointed at me, asked where my father was. They barged into my parents' bedroom and took my father away. He was thrown into prison for giving the resistance much-needed medical supplies and services. Somehow the Germans had discovered this. With his arrest, they stole our radio and ripped the phones off the wall. We spent our weeks trying to track down where my father and my brother had been imprisoned. We located John at Prison Saint-Gilles in Brussels, and the nuns at the nearby convent helped us, risking their own lives to deliver messages and food to him in prison. They were very helpful. He was alive, so that was good. Then one day we found out he had been moved somewhere else, but we didn't know where. We never found where father was located. In the fall of 1944, there was ongoing shelling for a number of days and skirmishes back and forth between the resistance and the German soldiers. And then the German soldiers got in their cars and left. Next we heard the roar of tanks coming up our street and we rushed out to see a whole column of soldiers marching into town. People were waving and cheering in the streets and women kissing the soldiers. And the next day thousands of troops walked into town. 
we could now retrieve the British flag we had sewn into a cushion on the sofa and the silverware from the well. We saw several collaborators being dragged out of their houses. They were being paraded down the street and women collaborators were having their heads shaved in public. My father returned home in April before D-Day. My mother and I hadn't known about the death camps before this and my father had only been spared because of his usefulness as a physician, but oh, he was weak and ill. And we were finally able to communicate with my mother's family in England for the first time in four and a half years. There were many Canadian soldiers in town holding the peace and many parties and dances to go to. My friends and I went every night, delightful after so many years of staying in due to curfew. And in February 1945, the young officer I had been going with asked me to marry him. We knew the concentration camps were being liberated and we waited to hear the survivors' names being read on the radio. We took turns listening and finally we heard John's name. Oh, we were ecstatic. He had ended up in the Dachau concentration camp. John, like so many, had been terribly treated, but... He arrived home in June 1945 in a beautiful open sports car given to him by the Americans. It had been taken back from the Germans, and John had it because he had been instrumental in helping them piece together the German movements in northern Belgium. He had been held for two years, and had spent nine months in solitary confinement, and his back had been broken from many beatings. Very cruel. There was a lot of bad news. After the war, I had a booklet of all the names of people who served in Service Zero. There were pages and pages of names. All had died in camps or been executed. The Count's nephew and pregnant wife had perished in the camps. He came to see me after the war and brought me a beautiful silver peacock and said, This is to thank you for saving my life. He had escaped the concentration camp because I'd gone to Brussels that day. I still have his gift today. It is one of my adored possessions. That was Edie's story, as told to me in 2005. Patty Allen was the voice of Edie. Thank you.
On the next episode of Invisible Women, I'm going to explore women's spycraft. Before women were sent into the field, and some of them while in the field, were taught how to create legend identities, how to sabotage, do reconnaissance, currying, wireless operating, and more. Spycraft. That's what's coming up on the next episode. Please visit us on the web, where you'll find additional information and resources. And I'd also like to invite you to leave comments or ask any questions you may have. You can do that on the website at www.invisiblewomen.ca. This podcast is produced by Robert Wiemet. I'm Diane Gregg. Thanks for listening.